Psalm 19, God's glory in creation and the law. <clears throat> the heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and nothing is hid from its heat. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock, and my Redeemer. Second lesson is from the book of Acts. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a childhood friend of Herod the ruler, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. <clears throat> In Lystra, there was a man sitting who couldn't use his feet and had never walked, for he'd been lame from birth. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. And Paul, looking at him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And the man sprang up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lycoan language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priests of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates. He and the crowds wanted to offer sacrifice. When the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, People, why are you doing this? We are men, mortals just like you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all peoples to follow their own ways. Yet he's not left himself without a witness in doing good, giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the crowds from offering sacrifices to them. Friends, let us take a moment to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts as we have heard from God's word.
May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Last week, our post-Easter journey through the formative years of the early Christian community took us to that pivotal moment of Peter's vision of uh, unclean animals coming down on a sheet from heaven with the, uh, the divine command for him to kill and eat, and his realization that what God had declared clean, humans should not declare unclean. The outworking of this, as we saw, was that the boundaries around the community of faith were blown apart. No longer was God the holy prerogative of one group of people, but rather the good news of, Je of God made known in Jesus was for all people without any distinction. And so at the end of our story from last week, Peter baptized Cornelius, the God-fearing centurion, along with all his family. A happy ending for all, and thus the gospel went to the Gentiles. Except, this was actually only the first act of a much longer drama. Because although Cornelius was a Gentile, he was also the proverbial thin end of the Gentile wedge. You see, he was already a God-fearer. He was already keeping the Ten Commandments and observing the requirements of the Jewish law to keep himself and his family ritually pure. Cornelius may have been ritually unpure to Peter, the good Jew, until his vision convinced him otherwise, of course. But there was so much more inclusion still to come than basically a very well-behaved, God-fearing Gentile. And in fact, this issue of how much of the Jewish law Gentiles should be required to keep if they became Jesus followers would dominate the early decades of Christianity. And Peter and Paul famously had a significant falling out over it before reaching a compromise solution. So you see, whilst Peter had taken the message of Jesus to Cornelius, Paul was taking it into places that Peter hadn't even begun to imagine. And this is what we see going on here in our reading today from a little bit further on in the book of Acts, where we meet Paul and his, his friend and co-worker Barnabas uh, embarking on what becomes known as Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, it's sometime in the late 40s. So we're about 15 to 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul and Barnabas set off from Syrian Antioch on the eastern Mediterranean coast. And they journeyed by boat to Cyprus. And then after spending a bit of time in Cyprus, they traveled by boat again to the southern coast of Turkey before heading inland and up into the region of the two cities of Lystra and Derby, which is where we meet them in our reading today. Just as an aside here, the distances that Paul and his colleagues covered on his various missionary journeys is is quite immense. 
A few years ago, Liz and I visited Turkey to visit some biblical sites in the area around Ephesus. And, you know, we'd get up and leave our hotel and jump in our nice air-conditioned car that we'd hired, and we'd drive for two or three hours on a fast motorway to get from one place to another in 40-degree heat. You know, you get out of the car and the heat hits you like a wall. It's just astonishing to think that Paul and his colleagues were doing these trips overland, on foot or by horseback. Anyway, back, back to our story. They've made it to Lystra, which was a Roman colony. And although the people in the countryside around it would have spoken the local dialect as well as ancient Greek, which was, of course, the language the New Testament is written in, archaeological evidence suggests that in the city itself, the dominant language, at least in terms of official inscriptions, was Latin. This was a thoroughly Romanized city. And what this meant was that as far as we know, when Paul and Barnabas visited Lystra, they were encountering people who had no background knowledge of Judaism at all. This is not a crowd of God-fearing centurions desperate to convert. It was rather a crowd well-versed in the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods with, as I say, as far as we can tell, no knowledge of Israel's God at all. Sometimes when Paul goes somewhere, if there's a local synagogue, he'll start there and, and see if he can win some converts for Jesus from the local synagogue before then moving out into Gentile territory. But here, he, he just has to go straight to the open space in the town, uh, the kind of the first century Roman equivalent of going down to Speaker's Corner and standing on his soapbox. And he started to tell people that the living God could be encountered personally through the spirit of God's son, Jesus, who had been killed by the Romans and yet was alive. And for this crowd gathered around him in this Roman city of Lystra, this was a new story. He wasn't trying to convince them that Jesus was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. He did that when he was speaking to a Jewish audience, but that's not the right story to tell about salvation to this group of non-Jewish pagans. Unlike Peter with Cornelius, he has no shared knowledge of the Hebrew Bible with them to fall back on. This is a moment of evangelism from first principles, trying to explain the good news about Jesus to people who don't even yet know who God is. Of course, they knew who the gods were, they knew who the Greek and Roman gods were at least, but they didn't know that there was one God, the God who had been revealed to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to the prophets, to Moses, to their spiritual descendants, down to Jesus and then to Paul himself. None of that was known to this crowd. And so Paul starts in a different place. He speaks about God. And as he does so, one man, just one man who had been lame from birth, paid attention and started listening. And this one man, this disabled man, found within himself the capacity to make the leap of faith and to believe in God revealed through Jesus. And he was healed. 
And it's surely not insignificant that the outcast, the beggar at the gate, was the first person in that Roman city to have an experience of faith. As is so often the case with miracles in the New Testament, the result of his healing was that his exclusion from society was removed. No longer would he have to sit and beg, unable to work. He encountered the good news of Christ and found himself restored. The cause of his shame in society removed from him. He found himself lifted up, literally in his case, to his feet to take his place alongside the other citizens of the city. And I wonder if we might ponder for a moment who in our world are the excluded, those who are cast down, those who are unable to take their full place in society. And I wonder if we might consider the structures and systems that are at work in our world to keep these people bowed down to the ground. I'm thinking as we explored last week of the racism that still runs through Western society. I'm thinking of the homophobia that still strikes deep into our church communities. These exclusions of people based on their God-given identity run contrary to Peter's revelation that no person whom God has declared clean should ever be called unclean. But I'm also thinking of the structures of inadequately regulated capitalism where workers are exploited and people are commodified where who your parents were and where you were born still profoundly affect your ability to live a good and healthy life? What I wonder would it be for us to do in our world what Paul did in Lystra? To look at them intently. Did you notice that Paul really saw that man? To look at them, to really see them to see those whom others ignore and to say to them as Paul said to the disabled man, the outcast and excluded man in Lystra, stand upright on your feet. Sometimes amongst some strands of Christianity there is a mindset that social justice is a kind of distraction from preaching the gospel that taking concrete and practical action in the world to address the injustices of people's lives is in some way not missional. Well, in response, I would want to say, tell that to Paul. When he found himself in a city where no one spoke the language of faith, where the only gods being worshipped were the gods of fear, exploitation and domination, his first missional activity was to raise a broken man to his feet. And I believe we should be doing the same. This is why, as a church, we get involved with London citizens, taking action with others to bring about justice for some of the most broken and bowed down people in our city. People whose circumstances of birth have dictated their lack of opportunity to flourish and stand tall. And through our partnership with London citizens and other organizations, we lift them to their feet. We help them to stand tall. And we do it because we see them. And we choose to stand with them.
We do this because we believe God loves all people without exception. Sometimes I hear some Christians bemoaning the fact that we no longer live in a Christian country. Upset that people don't know the name of Jesus except as a swear word. At a loss to communicate the wonderful gospel of good news that we have received because those beyond the church no longer speak the language of faith with us in the way they once did. Well, as St. Francis of Assisi may not actually have said, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Or perhaps to put that the other way around, when words fail, preach through deeds. Action to address the injustices of society is a gospel imperative, and Paul knew this well as we see in our reading today. But the people weren't yet hearing him clearly. They saw the transformation in the life of the man, but they didn't yet have the framework of faith to understand what they had just seen. The only matrix they had for this kind of conversion in a person's life was that of their existing religions. And so they proclaimed that the gods had come down to earth in human form, and they started to worship Paul and Barnabas as Zeus and Hermes, two of the Roman gods. And then it escalated as the local priest of Zeus came from his nearby temple with some oxen to offer as a sacrifice. Let's think about this for a moment. The only matrix through which the locals knew how to respond to a work of divine liberation was one which required an act of sacrifice by humans in response. And there's something deeply human about this desire to sacrifice something to the gods in exchange for divine favor or in payment for blessings received. In our interpersonal relationships with one another, we're kind of hardwired to a transactional understanding of what it means to relate. If someone comes to dinner at your home, chances are they'll bring a gift, a token offering to express their gratitude for your hospitality. If someone gives you a gift for no reason, maybe they just gave it to you because they thought you'd like it, the chances are you'll reply something like, oh my goodness, that's so kind. I'm sorry I don't have a gift to give you back. We're not used to receiving without expense. And at a commercial level, the transactions uh, in our lives are maybe more quantified. We know what the work is that expects of us and what we will receive back in, in remuneration. But there's still an expectation, isn't there, that we give something up in order to receive something back. I give up my time and my efforts, somebody then gives me money. And humans have been writing this kind of transactional relational system into their theology since time immemorial. Most ancient religions included some aspect of sacrifice in exchange for blessing. And what was unusual about Christianity was the conviction that this sacrificial system had come to an end. That the once for all sacrifice of Jesus, the sinless one who died to unmask and expose the forces of evil that keep people trapped in cycles of sacrifice, that this once for all sacrifice offered by Jesus, this is a central message of Christianity. And so 
Paul and Barnabas are quick to resist the offer of the locals in Lystra to hail them as gods and they resist the offering of sacrifices to them because the message they're proclaiming is that the cycles of sacrifice have come to an end in Jesus. This is what opens up their moments to preach, to turn their deeds into words, to teach those who lacked the appropriate grammar of faith the new language that would help them give shape to belief based on grace and not demand, on free gift rather than transaction. When I was preparing this sermon earlier this week, I was discussing it with Dawn, and she told me a story. So I'm going to tell you the story. There was once a village, and their local priest every day came and took a chicken to sacrifice to the local gods to keep them happy. But the village had a problem. They were running out of food and the people were hungry. They turned to the priest who said that the gods were angry and punishing them with hunger and required more sacrifice. So they sacrificed two of their precious chickens that day. But they were still hungry. So they sacrificed three chickens the next day, and yet they were still hungry. And then a prophet arrived and proclaimed that it was the will of the high gods that they should sacrifice no more chickens. And soon the people were no longer hungry. The problem with sacrificial systems is that they demand more and ever more to sustain themselves from grain, to animals, to money, to time, and yes, eventually, to human lives. We literally sacrifice people on the altars of our gods. And if you think we don't, I invite you later today just to go and walk around the West End to see the broken lives of the people begging on the streets in our city. Most of those whom you see will be the victims of people trafficking. The people who sleep on the streets are actually not those who, who do the begging. They're people who are being exploited unto death, working in Soho in the night and then being controlled to beg on the streets outside the stations during the day to fund the organized crime syndicates that supply this city's insatiable demand for illegal drugs. This is why we, like the citizens of Lystra of old, need to hear in our city a proclamation of the God who says the sacrificing stops here. This is why we need the good news of a God who sees the outcast, the vulnerable and the exploited and declares them pure and holy, call, raising them up and setting them on their feet. This is a gospel for our time every bit as much as it was for the pagans of Lystra. And so having, having demonstrated through action God's concern for the broken, having challenged the culture of transactional sacrifice, Paul then and only then attempts to frame faith in words. 
And he does so by using what theologians these days would call an exercise in natural theology. This is the attempt to establish religious truth by rational argument without reliance on revelation. So Paul points them to nature, saying that the witness to the goodness of God is to be found through observing the heavens and the fruitful seasons, the earth, the sea and all that is in them, the rain that comes down, the sun that shines, the good food that people eat with hearts full of joy. This is where God points these pagans for their revelation of God to give them a framework because he wants them to hear that God is good and God is love and God is the God of gracious gift in the face of a culture which says the gods demand sacrifice from you ever more and ever more. If Peter had established that God is already at work in the world beyond Israel, Paul is here taking this to the next level. Paul is saying that God is woven in and through creation and can be known through our experience of the goodness of the world around us. The place, place Paul goes to establish common ground, a common grammar of faith with the pagans of Lystra, is to go back beyond the prophets, beyond Moses, beyond Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, back to the goodness of the created world itself. And so in our world, where people no longer share the grammar of faith with faithful Christians, where our words and our proclamations fall on ears that are deaf, not because they cannot hear us, but because they cannot understand us. I wonder if we need to put our faith in the truth that actions can speak louder than words. From works of justice to a passionate commitment to creation care and environmental responsibility, if we are not walking the talk, we are not preaching a message that deserves to be heard. The God we worship, who calls us to follow by the example of Jesus and who inspires our hearts by the Spirit, is the God of the poor, the vulnerable, the exploited and the broken. But God, who is also the God of the cosmos, whose being is woven, interwoven through and in all things, who is known in nature, experienced through science, and worshipped through mystical encounter. This is also our God. Graham Harvey says, The world is full of persons, only some of whom are human, and life is always lived in relationship with others. All that exists lives, and all that lives is holy. And long-term friend of this church, Noel Mools, agrees, suggesting that everything that exists is both alive and sacred, with all things being interconnected and related, that the earth, along with each animal, plant, inert object, and natural phenomena are persons, or potentially so. A community of creation, requiring harmonious relationships between humans, their ancestors, and wild natures, 
nurtured by respectful and sustainable life ways. Or as Jesus himself put it, if every tongue were stilled, the stones themselves would cry out the glory of God. Or as the psalmist put it, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of God's hands, day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. This is our faith. These are the words of our faith. And so our calling is to proclaim the good news of God through works of raising up those who are broken, through challenging the systems of transaction in the world that keep people bound in ever sacrificing more of themselves to appease God's by proclaiming the sacrifice has ended and in Christ God loves and accepts you. And then by pointing people to the world outside, to nature, to creation, because all creation declares the glory of God. This is what it means to be God's missionary people in our world every bit as much as in first century Lystra and Derby. As Paul put it in his letter to Ephesus, we have one God and parent of all who is above all and through all and in all. Thanks be to God for his gracious revelation to us. Amen. Thank you, Simon. And I'm now going to ask Dawn and Philip if they will give us some of their reflections on what Simon has been saying. Is this mic working? Yes. Oh, good. Okay. Right, well, first of all, this uh, Psalm 19 is a great psalm, believe you me. Take it from me. Uh, psalm 19, I think, is a very great psalm. Um, and it ends with one, um, a verse that we hear all the time. One of the most popular, I think, in, in our church is that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, the heavens are telling the glory of God. Fantastic words. Um, and lots of us who <laughs> sang in choirs will know the heavens are telling from the Haydn creation and it's gone into lots of worship songs as well um, and uh, in our hymn book Lord thy glory fills the heavens there's a wonderful link with this to Psalm 46 which is a particular psalm I like um, and it was just as I was asked the other day by somebody by a neighbor who said I've got to give a talk in the local junior school and but I'm thinking of talking on the Psalms. What's your favorite psalm, Philip? And I thought about it, and I, mm, difficult, very difficult. And I got me going through quite a few to see if there is one. And I won't go into the reasons now, but Psalm 46 was one. Um, and in fact, by co complete coincidence, it is on the worship sheet this morning. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And also be still and know that I am God. 
loads of musical associations there too. Um, and one of the important things I think the heavens are telling, the glory of God, is this non-verbal. These days, people are always wanting to know about concepts and this, that, and everything else. It's non-verbal. Right, the second point, dealing with the New Testament readings, what can we learn from Paul and Barnabas today? How would we react in their sort of situations? They, of course, were in an unchristianized world. And, of course, we today are in an increasingly de-Christianized one. So words like what should we trying to recapture, reclaim, jettison, all of these things come in. And uh, I was quite, it, it, this got me guessing actually, when I first came here um, in the year dot, um, there used to be a, on a Sunday morning, a gentleman used to walk past going to another church. He wore a bowler hat and a walking stick. Um, some of you might remember him, but he, would all, he was always challenging outside there and pointing with his umbrella, you don't preach the gospel here. And I can remember one day somebody actually saying to him, we do mission here, we do mission. And he said, it's not mission that you need to do, it's evangelism. And I was trying to think, what is the difference between mission and evangelism? But somebody, um, actually said to him, we do mission in a variety of ways. And clinched it by saying, look at the example of Christ. What did he do? He didn't just preach to the people, but he fed the multitude. He fed 5,000 people. Is that not being part of the broader pattern? And so I think there'll be lots of newness in the future technology, internet, live streaming, etc., etc., new job descriptions. And to finish with, I was slightly, I don't know, if amused or intrigued rather by something that came up on my Facebook feed this week. It was Facebook, so therefore it must be right. Um, an advert from York Minster Cathedral. And they were advertising for a canon for congregational discipleship and nurture. Canon for congregational discipleship and nurture. I wonder what that means. Thank you, Philip. Um, my reflection whilst listening, I mean, I've obviously I heard it earlier in the week um, as well. <laughs> and the discussion that Simon and I had in the story about the, the, the village with the chickens um, being like a, a silly anecdote it was a reflection around the idea that that christ's sacrifice on the cross is meant the redemption of the whole earth and i really love this idea of that all creation is is part of god's kingdom that that whether it's animal human inanimate object we are all part of the cre the creation and therefore all redeemed within that and it just to me it just resonated deeply with my firmly held belief about love which you all know which is that God is love and wherever love is that's where God is and it again the freedom of being able to move from that tra transactional grace of if I behave then I'll get salvation if I say this prayer then I'll get a good thing if I um, give this much time or this much money to the church then I will get these things in return and that freedom of actually the redemption has already happened 
The freedom is there. It's simply for us to step into and to embrace and to, to be a part of. That, that it's, a, it's a free invitation, a free gift without expectation of return. It's simply for us to be with God. And I just, for me, it's just so freeing and encouraging and it lifts that weight of of anxiety that I remember having around my faith as a young person of am I am I living well enough am I doing enough of the right things am I am I save like that fear of trying to save people and actually God's love is there simply open for us to step into and this idea of the redemption of the whole earth and yeah that if we stop sacrificing there'll be enough if we stop sacrificing the chickens we get enough food and i find i found this morning a very encouraging thing to listen to and it makes me want to to go out and to do and to act and to be a part of this ongoing story and this ongoing redemption and freedom Yes, that's my, my reflections from this morning. Well, technology permitting, we're now going to be led in our prayers by Tommaso, who's speaking to us from Germany. Tommaso. Thank you, John. Let us pray. Eternal God, creator and redeemer of a soul, as our hearts are warmed, upon praying and worshiping you among friends. We thank you for the joy of companionship and for the blessing of fellowship. Gifts without which we might easily drift into shallowness and waywardness. Oh Lord, Give us pause to acknowledge the debts we owe to others, especially to those who surround us, but we often make invisible. Those forming the inescapable network of mutuality, sustaining our lives and our faith. We all dear the ties that bind us, the memories we share, the hopes and the dreams we have been nurturing together, and all the actions and thoughts by which we can claim kinship with our congregation's history and heritage. Was spirit we strive to preserve, renew, and pass down to others. Eternal God, give us strength, insight, and determination to help our neighbors stand up on their feet. Not by patronizing them, not by impatiently urging them to do what they shall do, but by finding ways to overcome their lameness. May we recognize that our abilities and resources are different. And so are the obstacles we face every day. 
May we bear in mind the wise warning by Dr. King. It is all right to tell a man to lift himself by his own bootstraps, but it is cruel to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. Then, eternal God, sharpen our own sight even further and make us realize that no matter our ambitions or our achievements, lameness affects us too. For, as the apostles remarked, we too are mortals. We too cannot pretend to know all the answers and cannot provide the ultimate deliverance we all long for. May we be spared the arrogant folly of believing it is up to us to cleanse this world of sin. And may we grasp the limits of our power for it is by reckoning with those limits and by seeking repentance accordingly that we can truly embrace you and the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. Eternal God, we finally pray for an ever greater discernment and understanding within the church. Only by listening carefully and thoroughly to one another, we can assuage our earthly passions, address our prejudices, and rejoice in your love. May this be a place where the meek and the broken are not only welcomed, but enfranchised and lifted up, where barriers and boundaries are not cherished but questioned, and when appropriate, torn down, and where your mercy covers us all. Amen. Lord, now that our worship is over, let our service to the world begin. May our lives reflect what we have, that we have been in a place that is indeed none other than the house of God and we have glimpsed that this is the gate of heaven and as we leave may the Lord bless you and keep you may he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you his peace amen <laughs>